0: If you have a Bible, you might open up to 2 Corinthians 3. We'll get there in a little bit. I'm excited. We're going to start a brand new series of teaching today. And uh, what we're going to be talking about, really, is God himself. Mike Bickle, the uh, apostolic leader at International House of Prayer, says this, that the most neglected subject in church... Often is actually God Himself. And we uh, have great teaching about how to get along with people and how to prophesy and how to pray for the sick and do all these sorts of things. And I love doing all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, the most important subject is, is God and who He is and what sort of person He is. And what I want to submit to you this morning is this concept that I will only ever be as whole as I believe God to be good. Most of our brokenness comes from an inaccurate picture of who God is. And I feel I love all the things that we get to do as a church, and, and I feel like we're called to a bunch of different things. But really, I think the primary thing that at least I'm supposed to do is to help us see clearly who God actually is. And that healing, body, soul, and spirit, in many ways, it comes from perceiving and knowing God and, and clearing up all the confusion and the veils and different things that war against the fact that God is good and that he loves you. It's all fine for me to say that God is good and that God loves you, but often we have beliefs and pictures of God that war against that that keep us in bondage. And for the next several weeks, what we're going to try to do is deal with some of those. Um, we're going to get into some fairly complex territory later uh, but it'll be a lot of fun, and I'll try to make it, make it simple for you. Um, but as my friend Dave says, I'm kind of a nerd, and so I like to go, I like to, to do some of these things. Here's the deal. We were all created for glory. Romans 3.23 actually says that we've sinned and that we've fallen short of glory. Glory in the Bible is the nature and character of God when it is on display, when it's manifested. What this means then is that I was created to outwardly manifest the love, the power, the goodness, the mercy of my Father. And when I sin, it's not just that I did something wrong or violated a specific commandment, it's that I failed to live up to my calling, my true identity. I lived at a level that was less than what God created me to be. And this is important because many of our stories, many of the ways that we view God and the, the whole narrative about humanity has to do with rule keeping. And how well you kept the rules. And Adam and Eve, you know, they didn't keep the rules very good, and that made God very upset. And so Jesus came here to sort of calm God down. And while there's a truth to the the fact that we need to live moral lives and all that sort of stuff, that's a much smaller picture of what's actually going on in the narrative of humanity than is actually accurate. Sin is not just doing something wrong, it's being less than what God created you to be. Many people actually believe that Adam and Eve, when they were created, the Bible says that they were naked, but when they sinned, something happened that enabled them to to notice that they were naked. Now, some people have theorized that they were actually clothed with light, because the Bible says that God himself is clothed with light. Now, I don't know whether or not that's true. You can't find chapter and verse for that, and so don't make a a doctrine out of it. But the point is that often in the Bible, glory and light are associated with one another, and we see the glory of God as light. And so Adam and Eve were created to be beings that radiated the light of heaven on the earth. And then they sinned, and the lights went out. And since that time, God has been on a quest to turn the lights back on. But the fascinating thing is, what is his strategy to do this? Because it's not what you might think. It's not to give you a bunch of rules and command you to live up to them. It's not to shame you for having the lights turned off and and being confused and all this. In fact, the strategy that God has for fixing this problem is found in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Hopefully you found it. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed from that same image from glory to glory. Now again, if you picture glory as light, what he's saying here is that I'm meant to progressively radiate more and more the love and character and nature and power of the God that I love and serve. But what's the strategy for accomplishing this? He says it's that I have to behold God's glory. I have to see him for who he is. The more clearly I see God, and what I'm going to talk about today, the more clearly I see the Father, the more I will be changed into His image. The more I will reclaim my original identity, my original purpose, the more I will be made whole. Sin really makes me lose sight of who I am. It confuses me about what I'm called to do. It makes me believe that I'm to be involved in things that are less than what God originally created me for. And this ultimately is the problem with sin. Is I mean, it, it's terrible and it destroys you and all these sorts of things, but it disassociates you from your original purpose, from your created destiny. And it leaves you broken on the inside. But what sin breaks, a clear picture of God will fix. It's true. And I can trace in my life sinful behavior to inaccurate and broken pictures of the Father. And as I clarify who the Father is, and as my heart is made whole, I live holier. And not only do I keep the rules better, but I actually (laughs) like people. (laughs) And I actually get to do the stuff and see people healed and and prophesy and do all these kinds of things. So I love all the teaching about how to do the Christian stuff, but at the end of the day, what makes it work is when I know the Father. So a big piece of our brokenness, especially in our society today, comes from fatherlessness, and there's even a lot of research that's been done about this, but Perhaps worse is is a distorted view of the Father, and many of us have had broken relationships with our natural fathers and so forth, and this can create a false perception of who God is, but today I really just want to talk to you about the, the story of the cross and the resurrection and the story of our salvation, because I think the way that we tell that story often paints a picture of the Father as less than He actually is. And this is damaging. So a major way of thinking that many theological traditions have dating back to St. Augustine is the idea that everything that occurs is the will of God. Good or bad, whatever happens, it must be God's will. And Augustine actually said this. He said, the will of the Almighty is undefeated. Now, I'm not going to take the time, I've done this in other messages, to to explain why I disagree with that statement. But if you just look honestly at the Bible, there's many, many occurrences where God will say, I want this to happen, and then the complete opposite happens. Okay? Has anybody ever had God tell them to do something, and then you do the complete opposite of what God said? Anybody? Okay? Um, So just being being real, all right? I believe that the will of God is, is thwarted, actually, all the time. Uh, but if you believe that everything that has that occurs is ultimately because God wills it, then you've got to do something with those parts of the Bible um, where it appears like there's tension between what happens and what God wills. And so, what theologians created is sort of this concept that is called the difference between the hidden will of God and the revealed will of God. And what has often Said is that there's a revealed will of God, which is God telling you, you know, what what he thinks should happen. But then underneath that is a sort of secret hidden will that we can't know and we can't connect with and we only know about it in hindsight. And probably one of the biggest ways this plays out is that, you know, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4 says that it's the will of God for all men to be saved. Everybody believe that? All right, so it says that, but it also does the Bible also talk about that some people are not saved? Yeah. All right, so a lot of times people will say, well, the revealed will of God is that all men are to be saved. But we know that not all men are saved, so there must be a secret hidden will, which is that actually it's not God's will for all men to be saved. And this is, uh, in my opinion, a really damaging way of, of thinking, and it's where we kind of get this idea. You know, anybody ever heard the statement, God works in mysterious ways? And, uh, uh, you know, we, we think, well, it's, it's hard to actually know what the will of God is because he says one thing, but it doesn't always play out that way, so we must, he must have a secret, hidden will underneath all that. And this creates a, a, a major tension In our hearts, it really makes it difficult, I think, for us to trust God because we fear deep down that he might have some hidden agenda that will actually bring harm to us. Now, what I think is even more damaging is, and and I don't know that anybody teaches this, but this is the way that it often gets written on our hearts, is that we tend to see Jesus as sort of the revealed, safe, happy will of God and we see the Father as this sort of dark, mysterious, hidden will of God. And most people are okay with Jesus. You know, Jesus was great. He, he healed everybody that came to Him. He forgave sinners. He, uh, you know, partied. He was an awesome guy. People loved Jesus. They were drawn to Him. And a lot of people have, have wholeness in their hearts when it comes to relating to Jesus but they're they're not sure about this guy, the Father, in heaven because they think that he might have a secret will that is at odds with Jesus. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, my main goal today is simply to try to prove to you that Jesus and the Father are one and that there isn't actually any secret hidden side of God. There was mystery about who God was. And the Bible talks about this, but the movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament is about resolving that mystery. It's about clarifying who God is. And if you look at John, real quickly, chapter 1 and verse 18, Jesus explains this. He says, John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is is in the closest relationship with God has made him known. That's the NIV. The King James says this, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared or revealed him. This is a striking statement because he's saying nobody has seen God. Well, what about all the people in the Old Testament that saw God? Is Jesus discounting all those encounters? No, what he's saying is basically what 2 Corinthians 3 says, which is that, that the law in the Old Testament had glory. It taught us things about God. But the New Testament in the light and the revelation that Jesus brought so far exceeds... The revelation found in the law that it's like nobody back there even knew God. It's like when the sun comes out, you can't see the stars anymore. The stars have light. But the sun so far eclipses, so far outshines and outstrips the light of the stars that you can't see them. And so Jesus is saying, look, guys... I know there was a lot of confusing stuff that happened in the Old Testament and we don't throw the Old Testament out. The Old Testament teaches us lots of things. I love the Old Testament. But if you go to like the book of Job and that's where you get your picture of God, you're going to the book that possesses the least light and you're using that to try to determine who God is. Now the book of Job has... Powerful revelation in it. I I like it, but you need to interpret it through the lens of the new covenant and through the lens of who Jesus is. And what he says here is that Jesus is in intimate relationship with the Father, and so Jesus is the one that is best equipped to tell us who the Father is. Job does not tell us who the Father is. Jesus does. The law of Moses does not tell us who the Father is. Jesus does. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3 actually says that the law puts a veil over God. And this is why if I'm in legalism and I'm trying to earn things from God, it actually makes it difficult for me to connect with the Father and see Him for who He really is because the law veils my heart. And it makes it hard for me to see God. If you turn over to Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3, It says this, God, who at sundry times and in diverse places spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So he says, look, in the Old Testament, God spoke in a lot of different ways. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through uh, uh, angels and all these encounters and so forth. But in these last days, he's spoken unto us through Jesus whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. I don't know that we fully believe this. Jesus... The man, the Jewish man who walked on the earth for 33 years and who ministered for three and a half years, who healed every single person that wanted to be healed, who forgave every person's sin that wanted to be forgiven, who who uh, touched lepers and, and embraced sinners and ate with tax collectors. The, the man who let uh, uh, women who were not... Meant to in that society, meant to learn. He let him come and sit at his feet. The, the man who let a prostitute wash his feet <coughs> with her tears and dry him with her hair. That man is the full expression of God. He is the exact image. The exact image. There is no greater revelation of God coming than the one brought by Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these pictures, these narratives that we have of Jesus, they are the full expression of who God is. And the climax of the books, all four of them, are the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what we've got to understand is that those moments speak to us more clearly than anything else in the Bible who the Father is. And so I think we've got to redefine a little bit what those moments mean. And we'll get there in a second, but I wanted to read just a few more scriptures to you. I'll do these really quickly. In John 10 and verse 30, Jesus basically says, I and the Father are one. We're one. In John 14 and verse 9, Philip is talking to Jesus and he says, Jesus, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you you haven't known me, Philip? How do you say to me, show us the Father? And then he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I don't know if we get this. This is is the, the thing that Jesus, he didn't even hint at it. He said it openly again and again and again. I'm God. And yet we don't believe it. We keep waiting for somebody else to show up. We keep waiting for the wrathful, vengeful God of the Old Testament to show up. We keep waiting for for some other revelation. We keep thinking that maybe behind Jesus there's a scarier, hidden version of God. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the Father. A verse later, it says, the Father in me. In verse 10, he does the works. Who is the person that healed all the sick people through Jesus? The Father. Who's the person that embraced lepers in their brokenness? It's the Father. Colossians 2 and verse 9 says that that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus bodily. All of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit somehow fit Inside the flesh of Jesus. I don't fully understand this, but when I when I see this, it begins to make me whole. And I I just think about, I just think about at the Last Supper, there's John, and he's leaning his head against Jesus. Why is he doing that? Because somehow he doesn't even have the words for it, but when he's close to Jesus, he's close to Dad. He's close to his father. I have little kids, and, and when I sit down, it's like a magnet. And they want to crawl on me. You know, they just do. They just want to be close to me. And, and you know, if you pressed my son, he wouldn't really even have the words he's for to explain why he wants to do this. But if you really pressed him, he would probably say, because I love you, Daddy. Daddy. But here's the greater truth. That's not actually why he wants to be close to me. It's because I love him. That's why. Why did people follow Jesus around <laughs> so much so that he couldn't escape them? Because they didn't have the words, but, but in here, somehow they knew, this is what, this is what I've been missing. When he speaks, something inside me is made whole. I'm reminded of my identity. Somehow I I realize something about myself that I I never understood before, that I'm loved and that I'm valued, and that I'm not an orphan, that I haven't been left alone. His voice is the voice of the Father. And when I hear it, I'm made whole. I think a big part of our, our disassociation between the Father and the Son has to do with how we interpret the cross. And I want to ask you to sort of reevaluate what you think happened um, at the cross. Now, I don't want to just throw out anybody's theology, and this will probably run against of what a lot of you have been taught. But if you really look at the scripture, I don't think that our picture of what happened is actually um, accurate. Often, the way that we tell the story, it it actually shows the Trinity not working together in the cross. And what it seems like is that Jesus gets left up there by himself, hanging alone, and the Father turns away, and, and that's how it's described. And that makes certainly a hero out of Jesus, and we love Jesus, but I actually think it presents the Father in a light that's less than he deserves. And I'll show you this. I don't believe that God abandoned Jesus on the cross. Now you say, well, Pastor, why did did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, we'll get there. But first, before Jesus said that, if you look at John, verse 16, or chapter 16, and verse 32. So, Jesus is predicting his death in this passage, and he says, a time is coming, and in fact will come, when you will all be scattered. Now, when did, when did this happen? Gethsemane, right? And leading up to the cross. And each will go to your own home. You will all leave me alone. But what? I'm not alone. Why not? Because the Father is with me. Now as I read that, one of two things is possible. One is that Jesus expected the Father to be with him on the cross and his expectation was violated. Or Jesus expected the Father to be with him on the cross and he was. I think the latter is a much better way to read it. What actually happened on the cross? Here's what I believe, all right? Psalm 22, verse 1, this is what Jesus quoted when he was saying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22 and verse 1. What I believe happened is that Jesus stepped into the blindness and confusion that comes into humanity's hearts when we sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him to be sin for us. And when we're in sin, dating back to the garden, what do we do? We run and hide from God because we assume that God is mad at us. And so Jesus is becoming sin, and he is entering into the darkness that humanity experiences because of sin. And so certainly to Jesus, it feels like he has been abandoned. And this is the story of all creation. Humanity believed that it was abandoned by its God. But it never was. That's not the story. That's not the story. Jesus cries out what we cry out because of sin. And Colossians 1.21 says that we're alienated from the life of God, from the experience of God through wicked works. But it says we're alienated in our minds. In our minds, not in reality. Sin confuses us. It makes us believe that we're the enemies of God. But God says, you're still my kids and I love you. And I'm coming after you. Now, in the time when Jesus was alive, they knew the scripture really, really well. And when you quoted a psalm, you were not just, when you quoted the first line of a psalm, you weren't just quoting the the first line, you were quoting the whole thing. You were invoking the whole thing. So when Jesus cries out, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In uh, Psalm 22:1, 1, what he's saying is Psalm 22 is happening right now. And if you've read Psalm 22, it's an amazing, amazing prophetic picture of the cross. It talks about uh, how Jesus' you know, garments, were uh, ca- they cast lots over them. It describes the physical pain and, and suffering and all these things that he went through. It's stunningly accurate. But what Jesus is saying is Psalm 22 is happening because I feel like God is forsaking me. But if you read the whole psalm, go down to Psalm 22, verse 24. What does this say? Talking about God, it says, He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. But has listened to his cry for help. Everybody, see that? What did Jesus experience? He experienced what all of us experience when you're in sin and you're confused and you're lost and things look like they're, they're going to hell around you and you cry out to God and you feel like he doesn't hear you and you feel broken and lost and confused. Jesus experienced that, but what does this teach us? It says that in those moments, God hasn't turned his back, he's heard us. Amen. Why did Jesus come? Because he heard the cry of the afflicted, yes. he heard the brokenness of his creation, and the Father stepped down here to save us. Yes. The Father came to the earth in the Son to save his kids. Now, if you still don't believe me, <laughs> turn over to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19. And can I get you three ladies to come up here just real quickly? Risa and, and I, I just need some help. Okay? Yeah, just come up on stage here. Okay. So, Roberta, you're first up. You're going to be over here on the left. You're going to be humanity. Okay? So, she's humanity. Come over here, Cynthia. You're Jesus. Right Hallelujah. can everybody see Jesus? scoot over, come over here, Risa, and you're the Father. All right. all right now here's the deal. A lot of times in our thinking, what we believe is that is that Jesus is, is the nice person, all right, and that Jesus' job really is to get the Father to chill out. And that the Father doesn't like us very much. in fact, uh, you know the the Jonathan Edwards said that he holds you like a spider over the pit of hell, and it takes all of his willpower not to let go. That's not, a, not an accurate picture of, of the Father, okay? But nevertheless, I think that's how a lot of times people, people picture it, okay? And so um, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, all right? Here's what a lot of times we think is happening, is that humanity is crying out to the Father. And the Father, because of sin, is turned away and isn't listening. And so what Jesus did on the cross is that Jesus took the Father and reconciled the Father to humanity. So that, now bring them together so they hold hands. (laughs) All right, okay. Now, is that actually what the Scripture says? Does it say God reconciled himself to humanity? It doesn't say that. It says he reconciled humanity to himself. What's the the actual picture? So humanity is like this. Humanity is in idolatry. Humanity is confused. Humanity is in sin. Humanity thinks God's the enemy. And so what Jesus and the Father do jointly is they come to humanity and they turn it around and they reconcile humanity, and they say, welcome back to the family. Now give her a hug. Aww. You guys can sit down. Give them a hand. Well, that's a good word. the <laughs> La exists for a bunch of different reasons. We'll talk more about some of these later. But one of them is to help us wake up out of our, our confusion... And our sin-induced stupor and realize God loves me. The Father loves me, not just Jesus. But God was in Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself. That's what Easter's about, guys. It's about Jesus and the Father working together to turn the hearts of all humanity around and put them in right relationship with God. Now, it's still playing out people have to believe, they have to put faith in Jesus, but God makes the whole thing possible. So what is is this about? When you see Jesus on the cross, that's the picture of who the Father is. Where's the Father in that situation? He's in Jesus. He's not in heaven somewhere looking away. He's not hiding his eyes from the, from the horror or something like that. He's not, he, you know, a lot of times people think, well, Jesus Jesus hung out with sinners and Jesus is okay with, with me and my mess, but, but the father's pretty freaked out by it. And a thing I try to communicate to my kids over and over is dad loves you and dad's okay with you even if you're in your mess. because a lot of us still make messes. My kids make lots of messes. And what I try to do is manage myself in the context of their mess so that I'm not upset because I don't want to paint a false image of God on their hearts. Well, let's all stand up. That might have been more than you bargained for on Easter Sunday. I don't know. But I know this. I know I know the voice of the Father. It's the voice of Jesus. It's the same voice. If my prayer team could come down here. My heart in all this is just that I want you to see Jesus clearly. I want you to see God clearly. And God the Father, God the Father and God the Son are the exact same person there. They're different. They're they're separate, but they're the same. They're one. They work in tandem. They do everything together. Come on down here, guys. And so, whatever you need this morning—if you need forgiveness, if you need healing, if you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, whatever—God the Father and God the Son want to work together to bring you your breakthrough. Amen. So I'm going to pray for everybody. If you need personal prayer, if you need something, I've got awesome prayer ministers that would love to agree with you. And when I just say amen, we'll dismiss the service. So, Father, thank you that you are so good, that you came to the earth in the sun, and that you have forgiven us all of our trespasses, and that you love us even in our mess you promise to stay connected to us even when we mess up so that we can overcome our problems and we just thank you for your love I just release right now a baptism of love, a baptism of the Father's affection, a baptism of the Father's approval Lord we just receive it we thank you for it in Jesus' holy name Amen, Amen we love you, you guys have a great week if you need personal prayer come down Molly and I will be right down front here if you'd like to meet us. Happy Resurrection Sunday.